0: we've been in a sermon series titled set apart this is a sermon series that we are journeying through together along with our global every nation family and that means yes all around the globe over 80 nations churches within every nation are venturing through this together looking at this idea or this quality of holiness and what it means for us in our lives as Jesus followers holiness and uh, the first week I preached and we talked about how God is holy, and our pursuit of holiness must be grounded in God's holiness. It can't be grounded in some other faux holiness that the world presents. It can't be grounded in the false idols of the flesh that, that we're presented with every day, but it has to be grounded in the holiness of God. And then last week, Pastor Casey brought one of his best messages I've ever heard, and he talked about how, amen, yes. Was that Nina agreeing? Or was, oh, was the Haley, Okay. And uh, he talked about how sin caused man to lose what could only be found in God. And then he came back around on the back side of that and showed us how Jesus ultimately fulfills all of those things later on down the path of this story. Um, And today, we're going to be taking it kind of a step further, moving forward in this narrative. But before we get into it, I'm going to start off with something a little triggering and controversial. Everybody excited about that? When I say, this is rhetorical. When I say 2020, what do you think of? Rhetorical means you don't have to respond, Martha. Thank you. (laughs) And in in my notes, I say, don't shout, and we can pray for you after service if this does too much damage. 2020, I think, since you asked, I think of a period of time where access to relationship was cut off. We couldn't go to school. We couldn't go to church. We weren't supposed to celebrate holidays and events with family. The intended ways of interacting, of building relationship and enjoying life were at least for a period of time ceased. And that's unless you were like some people and you were a rule breaker. Um, you, <laughs> th- it was ceased. <laughs> then there was a significant adjustment that happened over this time. Now, maybe it wasn't ideal, But it provided a way for us to be in relationship while we waited for the real thing to return. Does anybody remember what that adjustment was, what that thing was? Four-letter word starts with a Z. Zoom. (laughs) Whereas four years ago, like, oh, Zoom's that thing they use in offices and businesses. It became the thing, right? Zoom. And today I still get a little like, oh, gross. It just leaves a weird taste in your mouth, right? Like, Zoom. Zoom. But because of Zoom, we were able to have prayer groups and prayer pods. We were able to still do some semblance of small groups, Sunday services. We were able to do staff meetings. We had weird game nights through there. People would get on and try to like, let's act like we're having fun together too. And Mentorship meetings, discipleship meetings, and the list goes on and on. Now, I'm, I don't think a single person in this room would honestly say or believe that Zoom was like the way, the truth, and the life when it comes to connection and what was best for us, right? Like, you know, like, oh, Zoom has arrived, the king has returned, this is how I want to do relationships. Like, nobody says that. But it did provide a way for us to relate, connect, and continue on in the midst of challenges that we were collectively facing. And for that, I say, praise God for Zoom. Because in a season of disconnect, it allowed us to connect in some form or way. And that is not the main point of today, but I'm glad that we're excited about it. Um, It it got us by for a time. It provided a way to connect. It it was something that we desperately needed in that season of life. And even though it wasn't the perfect way, the preferred way, it was definitely not the long-term, lasting way. It was a suitable way for the time being. Amen. Amen it was suitable for the time being. And where this leads us in our sermon series this week is that we learn God's holiness because of sin and that he cannot be in adjacent to or around anything that is not holy, just, right and perfect. It is actually to sinful humanity or deadly to sinful humanity. His holiness is. But he created a way for people to have a relationship with him. It may not have been optimum, it may not have been the eternal way, it may not have been the best way, but in the time being, it interrupted separation and it ushered in a way for us to connect with God, with the Father in a particular way. He gave us That And that's what we are going to look at today. How was holiness revealed to us? How was connection made available, even in an imperfect way, though would foretell of the perfect way to come? That is what we are going to look at today. So before we get started, turn to somebody and say, I am ready to encounter the truth of God this morning. Okay, that was weak. Then say, I am ready to encounter the love of God this morning. That's better, Zoe. Thank you. And I am ready to encounter the living God this morning. You see, when we come together, this isn't just some religious exercise that you can check off your list so that you know you're in the favor of the Lord for the remainder of the week. We come here to encounter the word of God, to encounter his presence, to encounter the reality that a tomb is empty and it has implications on our lives. And one of those implications is that we have family in this room. We get to experience and encounter the love of God through one another, through his word, through prayer, through praise. This is not just a religious activity. This is an encounter. Do you hear me? Okay, I'll step down off that soapbox and we'll get ready to hop up on another one. But first, let us read some scripture. We're going to go to everybody's second favorite, only to the book of Numbers, book in the Bible, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to be starting in verse 1 through 5. Then we're going to jump to 20 to 22 and then a couple verses at the end. The reason we're jumping around is not because we don't want to preach through the whole Bible. It's because we're going to summarize some of that and we're just going to get to the points. We could read seven chapters, and uh, but we're just going to we got to get into what God wants to do in this, this morning. So, our text for today, Leviticus chapter 16, I'm reading out of the ESV, whatever translation you have, that's great. Um, I had a Bible professor tell me once when asked, what's the best translation? He said, the one that you will read. So, whatever you're reading, praise God, But I'm preaching out of ESV today. It says this, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. So this is how you will be able to enter. It says, With a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. This is a ritual cleansing that he was going through. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And then in verse 20 it says, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. That's a few confessions. And all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away Into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. And then in verse 29, and it shall be a statute. To you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for what you're going to speak to us through this. God, I thank you that even as some of us in this room hear this, we're like, what in the heck is going on? And that you're going to bring clarity and that ultimately through this, you are going to point to Jesus and the good news that is in the gospel. So God, I thank you for this journey you're about to take us on. Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you deepen our relationship with you through this? And Father, we pray ultimately you would have your way and be glorified in our time together in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, Amen. amen. Welcome to Leviticus. Welcome to Leviticus. God made a way. So Leviticus is in the middle uh, book of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And it details overall the answer to the question that is continually raised in the book of Exodus. How can a holy God have a relationship with sinful people? Anybody ever wonder that to themselves? How can a holy God have a relationship with sinful people? And the book of Exodus begs this. In fact, it's been begged since Genesis 3 when humanity fell into sin, which Pastor Casey so graciously and amazingly unpacked for us last week. But how can sinful people, broken people, people who mess up, try to do things their own way, think they're a more qualified leader of their lives than the God who created them, how can those people have a relationship with the God Who created them? The Exodus narrative contains two events concerning fire. And the first one is the fire in the bush in chapter three, and the second is the fire on the mountain in chapter 19. And in both cases, this fire represents the holiness of God and the threat that holiness is to sinful humans. And then the Passover narrative in Exodus answers how a holy God can dwell with sinful people. If you remember the story, we, if you don't, you can go back. We've preached on Passover a couple times at least. But Passover night redefined Israel's problem. They had lived under the threat of a genocidal king, but now another king is on the way, an even more fearful king than Pharaoh. And with this king, there is no negotiation. There is no, here's my commands, now you receive them and let my people go type of conversation. And there's an ensuing death of the firstborn of Egypt, and this showed how real the threat of this coming king was. But while there was no negotiation, so to speak, there was a provision. There wasn't a negotiation like, hey, let me tell you what I think would be good. Let me share with you my agenda, and let's kind of work back and forth and see what the best solution is. No, this king comes in, not needing to negotiate. He's already got a plan, but he does also give a provision, he gives a provision. He says, When I see the blood, which is of the lamb, over the doorpost, I will pass over that house. The firstborn in that home shall be spared. You see, without the lamb's blood, Israel was naked and uncovered and unprotected before this avenging angel that would sweep through. But covered by the blood, they were protected. And your Jesus radar should be going off. Covered by the blood, they were protected. And the concluding chapters of Exodus lead naturally into the book of Leviticus. So many times, especially with the Old Testament, we're like, okay, there's Genesis, and whew, I got through that. And then there must have been this huge gap, and then we get into Exodus. know Exodus. And like, no, these things... They just they flow naturally. It's a continuation of the narrative of God's redemptive purpose and plans on earth. They're not separate works. It, is, it all continues through in, in these books. So we need to read it that way. So it naturally leads us into Leviticus. And Leviticus explains how God's covenant people will maintain the relationship God established through the Passover blood. So God clearly did something with this whole Passover thing and taking the blood of a spotless lamb and putting it over your doorpost. And then the angel of death will pass by like he's initiating something here. He's doing something special. And Leviticus explains how that relationship continues. And the Passover solution finds its highest expression on what is called the Day of Atonement the Day of Atonement. This is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. On your calendars today, it will read Yom Kippur. That is the Day of Atonement. And commentators agree that Leviticus 16 is like one of the mountaintop peaks of Scripture. Now, when we read that, it doesn't quite make sense to us yet. By the end of today, it will. But we're like, man, we obviously are missing some things here. But commentators agree this is like this This mountaintop, this mountain peak of scripture. They've called it the Good Friday of the Old Testament. It's like the Good Friday of the Old Testament. It's the day when the holiness and grace of God find their fullest Old Testament revelation. This day of atonement. So, that's the context of what we're reading out of. Now, can we get into a few points of what I believe God wants to highlight and teach us through this that's going to impact your life leaving here today. Does that sound good? Okay. What does God want to highlight from this scripture? One, I always believe he wants to highlight, go home, read it for yourself, read a commentary, dig into it, pray through it, see what he might want to show you as well. But for the case of today, the first thing that I believe he wants us to recognize is that our sin is much worse than we think. It's much worse than we think. Now, why would a pastor stand up on a Sunday in a really excitable, loud voice and tell you your sin is much worse than you think? It's not to browbeat you. It's not to condemn you. It's not to bring shame. It's to recognize the depth of where we were so we can appreciate the depth of what has been done for us. And if we don't recognize how low, low is, we can't recognize how glorious the peak of the mountain is, how glorious it is when we ascend into a relationship with Christ. we we got to understand one to appreciate the other. And so Leviticus 16 begins with a reference to the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And yes, say that 13 times faster, however many times. It's a lot of vowels. And it references those two guys. And the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, the death of Aaron's sons provides us context for the events that unfold throughout the chapter. You see, it starts out referencing that, but if you don't know what it's referencing, then it's hard to know the context for the rest of what is being talked about. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which has not been commanded of them. So they were taking some liberties, if you will, in this sacrificial system. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. There's your uplifting Sunday school story for the day. (laughs) Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The death of Aaron's sons vividly illustrates... That no sin is small in the presence of a holy God. In a world that likes to, to use this concept of relativity as we evaluate our sin and others' people's sins, it's important to know that like sin's sin. Sin is sin. It is not relative. It's not like, oh, I I look across the room and we take some sort of survey and I'm in the 95th percentile, so I'm doing great. Like, no, any type of any sin interrupts, interferes with, and could be deadly. In the presence of a holy God. Your sin is much worse than you think. Sin is sin. And Pastor Casey talked about this. There's just kind of the idea of this hierarchy of sin. And it's like, nah, I, I get that like the implications on us, the natural consequences may be different between murder and lying or murder and plagiarism, right? It, like that, that may be different in the natural consequences, but it's sin is sin. And our sin is much worse than we think. You see, God is fearsome in his holiness, and his holiness is intense, and it's dangerous to sinful humans if left in this state of sin and just staying in that. So it's little wonder that the vision of the holy God is both awe-inspiring and frighteningly terrible. You got to remember people are used to at this point seeing like this fire of God like I mentioned earlier it's like oh my gosh a consuming fire and they hear these stories of how people are consumed in these moments of sin and lying and all these different infractions if you will and humans tend to either retreat in dread or bow in contrite worship with face the, with the reality of their sin and God's holiness Either retreat in dread, kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden, like hiding, like you're hiding from God, really, or bow in contrite worship, saying, God, I'm not worthy, like I apologize, how do we make this right? So this glory would devour anyone who approached holy, unclean, or unworthily. And then Leviticus reveals the great gulf that exists between us and God. And remember, we need to dig into this to really appreciate where we're headed. It reveals the great gulf, this great chasm, this just great gap between us and God. And Nadab and Abihu were confused because their actions blemished God's holiness and did not glorify the Lord, not confused, consumed, because, two different words, because their actions blemished his holiness and did not glorify the Lord. The Scripture records many other times when seemingly small sins had enormous consequences. And if you're anything like me, when these stories come up in the Scripture, you might read by them really quickly because they're uncomfortable. But, so let me remind you of them. Adam ate some fruit in Genesis 3-6. It's just some fruit. Why, why is this unfolding everything that we know of today? Lot's wife looked back at a burning city in Genesis 19. Moses hit a rock two times. In Numbers 20, Uzzah touched the ark in 2 Samuel. Ananias and Sapphira lied about real estate profits in Acts 5. And what do we learn from these events? What do we learn from these things? There is no small sins against a holy God. You see, sin only seems trivial to us when God's holiness seems trite to us. Sin only seems trivial. When the holiness of God is not fully grasped and understood and appreciated. God is an all-consuming fire who dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6.16 There is no impurity in him whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, Psalm 92.15, sinless angels who unceasingly cry, holy, 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 while covering their eyes and feet do so because God's unfiltered holiness is unbearable to endure. Isaiah 6.4, Revelation 4.8, And when righteous Isaiah stood before God, he exclaimed, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah 6.5, when we see God as holy, we see sin as no small thing. When we grasp in the best that we can that God is holy, we understand that no sin is small. They all interrupt and interfere with healthy relationship with God and others. They all contribute to this condition, this cancerous condition that inflicts and infiltrates the world around us. So, Your sin is much worse than you think. But God's grace is much greater than we think. His grace is much greater than we think. If we minimize sin and its effects on the world, then we minimize the work that Jesus has done and the work that God has put forth in our world. You see, in the story we read in Leviticus, the priests sacrificed two goats on the Day of Atonement. Each illustrating a different aspect of God's grace. The high priest chose the first goat by the lot and then sacrificed it for the sins of the nation. Sacrifice is a really sanitary way of saying he killed it. Okay, He took one and it gave its life as a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And the death of this goat as an innocent substitute represents the atoning sacrifice of Christ for the sins of the world. And the following verses confirm this truth, says in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once and for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9:11 through 14. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The first goat pictures atonement the theological truth that God has restored our broken relationship with him and paid for our sins, they no longer have a claim for us or on us. If you wreck someone's car and their insurance pays, and their insurance pays the damage, that person no longer has a claim with you. The debt is settled, right? Somebody else paid for the damage. The debt's settled. And God settled our debt in the death of his sinless son, An event that was prefigured in the death of this innocent goat. It was foretold of, it was indicated, if you will. And though it's impossible, as Hebrews 10 says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, the Israelis who had faith in God had their sins taken away by the Lamb of God who was slain from the creation of the world. That's Revelation 13, 8. The second goat was actually referred to in our language as azalea. Azalea, a beautiful plant here in the Northwest, but a different context. Azalea, this Hebrew word, means the goat that departs, traditionally referred to as the scapegoat. You guys have heard this term scapegoat, right? So instead of saying scapegoat, you can be like super sharp and just say, oh, azalea, yes. I'm not your azalea. (laughs) Anyway, the high priest would lay his hand upon the scapegoat and confess all of the nation's Sins, This symbolic act transferred the transgressions of the people symbolically onto this scapegoat. And a chosen Israelite who would lead the goat into the wilderness where the goat would wander off and presumably die over time. So all of the sins and transgressions were cast upon this scapegoat, upon poor Azalea, and was sent off into the wilderness where they would presumably die. The second goat pictures the results of atonement. So the first one signifies our status because of what Jesus did. The second one shows the results of atonement. We see that... What has become of our sins, that they are gone forever. When the man returns from the wilderness, he informs people, the scapegoat is gone. And the people clap their hands and they, they celebrate because their sins are gone as well with that scapegoat. They are gone as far as the east is from the west. This is cleansing This is a theological truth that God pays for our sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west. They are gone, not to be revisited or held over our head. They're not tucked away in some file so that when you mess up again, it's like, oh, here's the Rolodex of everything that comes back now. No, they are gone The result of atonement is that those sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. God's grace is much greater than we think. And I praise God for that. Amen. The third is this. Jesus is our high priest that solves the problem of our sin. Now usually all the priests participated in sacrifices. But on the day of atonement, only the high priest performed any work. Only this one priest did everything that day. Lit the candles, the fires, the incense, all the required offices that needed to happen. One person did. He was the only one to take the blood beyond the veil into the holy place. Jesus is our high priest who provides our atonement. Only he can go beyond the veil in this setting here. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever, Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. The high priest wore his golden garments every other day of the year. But on the day of atonement, he shed his royal robes and he donned simple linen clothing. Simple linen vestments, if you will. Jesus Christ then, when he made atonement for our sins, laid aside his glory, and he took upon a humble human flesh. And he did not atone for our sin, or he did not atone for our sins, arrayed in the glories of an ancient throne. He didn't just come here as a king, he put on flesh, he took on the life and the experience that we knew, and he died as that for our sins. But after the day of atonement, The work was complete and the high priest would go put his golden robes and garments back on again. However, Christ, having suffered once for sin, is never to die again. He will return as a royal king. He never has to put on those human fleshly robes again. He is a royal king and will be forever. The work is done and complete. It's not an annual celebration with a scapegoat because Jesus paid the price as our high priest once and for all. Amen? The work is done in Christ. John Stott, in the book, The Cross of Christ, said this, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where only God deserves to be, and God puts himself where only man deserves to be. <clears throat> pays the price for us. Fourth thing, we must receive this grace by faith. It's not something that's forced upon us. We have to receive it by faith. God required the Israelites to respond to the events of the Day of Atonement by humbling themselves and doing no work. Now, we all know that person that's like, it's not a humbling thing for me to just sit around and do no work. But for these people, it was. To say, no, you sit by and you do nothing all day. You don't participate in this. You're not going to collect food, rations, whatever it may be, you are going to do nothing today. The high priest will put in all the work for your atonement. Leviticus 16.29, to remind you, says, And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. The high priest was to do all the work, and the people could do none. Leviticus 23.30 later says, And whoever does any work on that day, on that very day, the person I will destroy from among his people. This is a clear picture in this of the gospel. We add nothing to the finished work of Christ. The high priest, in being a representative of the Christ to come, does all the work for us. There is nothing that humans can add to that day of atonement. There is nothing that the people of Israel could add to that day of atonement. And there is nothing that any of you in here can add to the cross of Christ to amplify or make more complete the work that was done for you, the saving work of Jesus on that cross. We can add nothing to it. Paul wrote in the Galatians concerning this topic. He said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who will trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary of the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. In this passage, the contrary gospel, Paul refers to is a religion that places human effort at the center rather than the work of Christ, the complete, sufficient work of Christ on the cross. And anyone who embraces that religion is accursed, just like anyone who works for their atonement is cut off from among the covenant people. If anybody is preaching something to you that is Jesus and, it's a false gospel and you're to not entertain it. Paul speaks really clearly about this. Anything other than the fact that human was complete, humans are completely unable to rule their own lives. We are horrible leaders of our own lives. We have a minuscule perspective of what's happening in this earth compared to the God who created us. And until we recognize that, turn from our ways of self-governance, self-leadership, and sinful nature towards Jesus and fully receive by faith his work on the cross for our salvation, and then live in a way that brings honor and glory to him, daily choosing selflessness instead of selfishness, then we're just preaching a gospel that is not the one that the Bible preaches. Do not entertain that. So the Apostle Paul summarized the message of the Day of Atonement with these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Seems like there was a pride problem back in the day as well. So the pardon God issues on the Day of Atonement must be received by faith. If an an Israelite did not believe in the work of God's grace, he would not receive the pardon offered. Let me break it down for you this way. In 1829, a man named George Wilson robbed the U.S. mail, jeopardizing the mailman's life of whom he robbed. He pleaded guilty to the charges, and the court sentenced him to death by hanging. No sin is too small. Friends arranged for President Andrew Jackson to issue Wilson a pardon. But Wilson refused the pardon. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the official ruling for the court. He said, a pardon is an act of grace. He said, the validity of which is not complete without acceptance. It might be rejected by the person to whom it was offered, and the court could not force it upon him. The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it." We cannot receive the benefits of Christ's atonement unless we receive them by faith. You cannot receive a gift without opening it and applying it to your life without utilizing that gift. Well, why doesn't Jesus just force his will upon all of us? Because we have free will. And what is love without free will and a choice to actually love and reciprocate that? And so what we're seeing here is, yes, Jesus paid the price, but our goal as representatives, as ambassadors of this kingdom of God, is to go help lead people to a place where they will accept that in faith, where they will accept that pardon, where they will accept that and receive that by faith. The fifth thing is holy living results from our experience of God's grace. Worship team, you can come back up. Holy living results from our experience of God's grace. You see, the first 15 chapters of Leviticus lead us to this Day of Atonement that we read about in chapter 16. And these chapters teach us about worship and the way to God. And then the last 11 chapters follow from the Day of Atonement. They're after that. They are about holy living and our walk with God. Now, this is the essential pattern of the Bible. God's work of salvation comes first, and then our obedience is done in response to it. It's not, we obey, so God saves us. It's he saves us, and that compels us to obedience. That compels us to holy living. Holy living always follows worship of the Holy One. When you are in the presence of praising and worshiping the Holy One, holy living will follow. Worship is our response to God's complete work to, our, to secure our redemption. Worship. Now, we think in this context, because you might hear, like, let's go back into worship, that worship is just about singing songs. And worship and praise is, through music, is a way that we do that. But worship is a lifestyle, Worship is a way in which we conduct ourselves in every decision and action, whether small or large, in a way that would point to Jesus Christ as the king of our lives. It is the way in which we represent him in this world through our actions, our conversations, how we conduct ourselves, how we utilize our resources, our our time, our money, our relationships. That is what worship as a lifestyle looks like. And so... Holiness and encountering a holy God leads to, or, sorry, worship and, and holiness, they, they entangle with each other, if you will. I know that has a societal um, attribute to it, but they are so enmeshed in one another that you can't take them apart. When you encounter the holiness of God, it leads you to no other thing but to worship him. It leads to no other thing. Holy living is what follows our experience of receiving love from a holy God. Now I want to ask you, has anybody in this room this morning experienced the grace of God? Is there anybody that's experienced the grace of God in their lives? So it would only make sense then that after we experience the grace of God, that we would exemplify, that we would engage in worshiping him. Not just reading lyrics off a screen and raising our hands and singing out loud together. Yes, do that. But once we leave this place, the other nearly seven days a week, after you leave church, right? After you leave our gathering. You see, my belief is that we come together, we gather as a church to pray together, to receive the word, to praise through song, to build us up as a people to be scattered as the church into the city, into wherever we're working, wherever we're living, our neighborhoods. We come together here to prepare for out there, not to escape from out there, you come here. This is a every Sunday, family reunion of what God's doing in our family and a missionary training to go engage in what God has called us to engage in. And when we experience the grace of God, when we understand how bad our sin is and that that makes God's grace so much better and that we need to receive that by faith and we understand that, you know, that we have the ultimate sacrifice in the person of Jesus, why wouldn't we want to go tell people about that? Why wouldn't that consume our prayers and our relationships and our life? It changes the, our, our workplace, our job, our schooling from just a mundane completing a checklist of things, ticking off the different lines of a syllabus or a task list for a day. And it says, "How can I bring Jesus into this? How can I represent Him in the seemingly mundane, and see Him breathe life into areas where it doesn't seem like people are recognizing Him right now?" That's all part of a lifestyle of worship. And when you encounter a holy God, the only response that makes sense is to live a life of worship. So as we close today, I just want to leave you with this, this you can call it a question, you can call it a charge, you can call it whatever you want. But will you live your way in a manner that shows that you've encountered God? Will you live your life in a way that indicates you have as best as you can grasped that there is a holy God who loves you, who's given himself for you so that you can live differently and set apart in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and start passing out communion. <clears throat> we do our best to do this on the first Sunday of every month. Just grab one cup. They're stacked. The bread is in a cup underneath it. Um, but I find this quite fitting that we get to come out of this this sermon, this idea of holiness revealed, God making a way for relationship with himself. And we had come into this moment of the Lord's Supper, of of communion, of taking the bread and the juice. And it is a moment, as always, to remember the work that Christ has done. But today I pray that the weight of what he's done in the face of without him what we would encounter would really settle with you. Like not just, yeah, thank you, Jesus. But like, God, I am so broken and lost without you. If it weren't for what you did on the cross, I would be eternally separated from the God who created me. I wouldn't have hope. I wouldn't have a purpose that is better than just whatever purpose some secular thing gives me, some degree or workplace might give me, that I have a purpose and a mission because of what you've done for me on the cross that I have direction in my life. And that doesn't mean that the Bible tells you what your exact job is or exactly what every step of every day looks like, but you know where in Jesus' name you are supposed to head. You know the direction of your affection. You know the direction of your relationships. You know the direction of your mission because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross, not because of some revelation that a professor or a manager at your workplace gave you, but because of what is contained in the truth of the scripture about who you are and what he wants to do through you and when we take the bread in the cup today we get to remember that we get to reflect on that reality i don't have to guess i don't have to wish i have hope because of the fact of what jesus did on the cross and that applies to me because i have received it in faith and that is not just good news for us in here today but because of what we've received and what we are going to commit to represent this is good news for our city This is good news for our families. This is good news for our workplaces. We come here to receive, get built up, and celebrate so that we can represent Christ everywhere he would lead us throughout the weeks. And if you're not sick of me saying that yet, then you haven't heard it because I put it in almost every week. We will represent Christ everywhere he leads us.